Welcome back to another sensational episode of Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. Today, we're going to learn everything we always wanted to know and then some about the hero of the orchestra, El Presidente, La Creme de la Creme. I'm not talking about the conductor. I'm talking, of course, about the French horn. I'm Jason Sieber, the associate conductor of the Kansas City Symphony. I'm Mike Gordon, principal flute of the Kansas City Symphony. And I'm Stephanie Brimhall, the education manager. So in a few short moments, we're going to be joined by our very own principal horn of the Kansas City Symphony, Alberto Suarez. Now that we're in our third month of the podcast, we we thought it'd be cool to regularly feature some of our very own outstanding musicians in the symphony. And this week, we were scheduled to play Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony in Hellsberg Hall, Um it's a, an amazing piece all by itself, but it, it really has a standout horn solo in the second movement that's just one of the most beautiful solos in all of the orchestral repertoire, which is why it makes sense to have Albert here to talk to us, not just about that solo, which I know he was looking forward to playing, but for us also to learn about the horn and about Albert's career. And, you know, there's some debate in the orchestral world about uh, whether the flute or the horn is the uh, greatest, most important instrument, you know, which has the most solos, uh, which instrument can play faster, harder material. I mean, I think there's a pretty clear answer uh, from my perspective. I think it's obviously <laughs> the flute, but I think what creates the confusion is the fact that the horns are always playing so loudly, you can't tell what the flutes are doing. <laughs> Uh, so it'll be interesting to talk to Albert about that and see if we can uh, come to some resolution on this. Well, Mike, I will tell you that as much as I do love the flute, I'm a big horn fan. Um, you know, I'm a violinist. Uh, I love the violin. But if I had to do it all over again, I would honestly pick the horn or perhaps the cello, which is sort of like the string version of the horn. You got, of course, such a beautiful sounding instrument with gorgeous tone but you have an incredible range. Sometimes you get these soaring melodies. Uh, sometimes you get to play low, crass, kind of edgy stuff. So if I had to do it all over again, I, I would definitely pick the horn. I don't know about you guys, but I'm, I'm glad we're having the chance to talk to Albert today about this magnificent instrument, even more magnificent than the flute. <laughs> I like that you use the word crass to describe the horn. I, I love that. <laughs> so Maybe crass was a little crass. Maybe uh, edgy. How about that? Edgy. I don't know. Mike might go for the word crass over edgy. Who knows? <laughs> I mean, I think I've said enough. <laughs> <laughs> so now why don't we meet our guest? Welcome to Beethoven Walks Into a Bar, Albert Suarez. Hello. And I will add already, because I mean, this is a immensely <laughs> educating conversation for me about the flute, but no one's got the offbeats like the horn. I mean, really. Like we nail that every time we're given that. That's true. That is very true. That is very well, true. we're uh, super excited to have you today. And of course, uh, myself and Stephanie in particular uh, have been friends with you for a long, long time, both here in the Kansas City Symphony and elsewhere uh, previously. And it's just been awesome to be friends and to uh, share a career together and to play so many amazing concerts together. So this week, as we mentioned, uh, we were going to play Tchaikovsky 5, and uh, this is actually a favorite piece of mine too, and it has a lot of beautiful flute writing, but it's undeniable that the horn solo is the thing. Uh, so talk to us for just a minute about what 
what you love about that solo, what it's like to play it, and we'll go from there. Yeah, I mean, I, it's a great pleasure to talk to you guys. It's uh, We've had a lot of time together. We've grown uh, with each other in so many ways, and this is one of those pieces that I was really excited to play. Every time this comes up in when our season, it feels like it's almost like a reminder of why I play the horn and why the melodies are so important. Um, composers were around Tchaikovsky's time, they started to figure out that the horn was this amazing instrument that both can be heartwarming and um, powerful. And they were writing for it really well by then. Um, Tchaikovsky kind of messed around with it in, in the second symphony and was like, oh, the horn can have a melody right at the beginning. Um, but in this work, it, it takes um, the major melody of the piece. And of course, Tchaikovsky sets it up beautifully. And it's just, it's like poetry. It's like a ballet, how he writes for the horn, really uh, exposing the best parts and the excitement of the sound. And it gets everyone, I think, energized about it. So that's why it's kind of the reason why the horn is the best deal in the band sometimes. <laughs> and if I can add to that, I, I remember attending a concert once at uh, Aspen Music Festival. And for anyone that is even a little bit familiar uh, with that festival, you know that the concerts happen in a semi-permanent tent. And uh, one evening when they were going to be playing Chike 5, we got a rainstorm and got to the slow movement, and there was so much noise in the tent from the rain, they just decided to skip the slow movement. And of course, <laughs> the tent was packed Ugh. with people who wanted to hear just that solo. So at the end of the concert, John Zerbel, who was playing horn, uh, he plays in the uh, Toronto Symphony, right? Montreal. Oh, Montreal. Montreal Symphony. Thank you. He just sat on stage by himself, and a whole bunch of people piled onto the stage, and he played the solo uh, just by himself after the rain had passed. It was a really cool moment. Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about why the horn is the best instrument, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that. But I think one thing that perhaps we can agree on here is that it is one of the more, if not the most, difficult of instruments to play. Um, so maybe we can talk a little bit about what makes it difficult and kind of some obstacles that you have to overcome so the reason the French horn is rather difficult to play um, is because composers are writing for it and it has a four octave range that I've actually seen in music. Whereas unlike in the trombone section, you have a bass trombone. We don't have a bass horn. So we're required to play all of this music on the, the single instrument we play. And then for the people that play the higher horn parts being the first horn and the third horn, we're really dealing with the upper two octaves of that. So the partials are getting nice and tight. So pretty much you can play a major scale on the same fingering in the range that I have to play. Yeah, and so those these uh, partials that you're talking about, all brass instruments have partials, uh, notes that occur. I'm going to get super nerdy here for a second for those of you that don't know the acoustical thing of what Albert's talking about. But basically, uh, there's a fundamental pitch, and then there's a series of overtones over that pitch. The first one's at an octave, and then a fifth, and then a fourth. And as Albert said, they get smaller and tighter and tighter. And so for any brass instrument, when you do not push any valves, or if you have the trombone in first position with the slide completely in, you're going to get those fundamental partials as they're called. 
But um, the problem with horn, of course, is that most of the notes that are kind of in the middle part of your range, those partials are already extremely close to one another. And especially as you get into the higher range, it's the little minute difference you have to adjust your lips, your embouchure, uh, makes a big difference in which of those partials you hit. So especially for young horn players, Albert, I think you'd agree um, that that's a big part of learning the horn and making those really small adjustments in your how tight your lips are to get a pitch. And you can easily jump from a B flat to a D without, with, without barely moving your lips at all, whereas trumpet, those partials are a little bit further apart. And of course, trombone, you have your, your slide, of course, to help you uh, with, with the pitches in between. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think the other thing is that with horn, you have to have a really good ear um, yeah. to understand um, how, which note you're actually going to play when you hit <laughs> what you're aiming for and where it's actually going to sound. If I can add one point of comparison here, you know, on the flute, this concept of the partial is really the same. It's just that on the flute, we have all of these buttons that you see, right? So, uh, you know, I can I can finger an A natural, and depending on how I blow, I can get, you know, an A natural in one octave, or an A natural in another octave, or I can overblow even more and get, get other notes. But really, there are only two or three notes that can come out with a single fingering, and I have to blow really differently to get each of those notes. On the horn, God only knows what's going to come out. I mean, they have to just, you know, pick one out of maybe 12 different things that could come out. <laughs> well, and then you have this addition, because the modern horns that are exist now, and I know a little bit of this because my husband is a horn player, as Albert and Mike know very well. <laughs> um, but the modern horns, I mean, they have three valves, and, you know, you you can do a lot with them. But the like original, like the first horns were, there were no valves, natural horns, and you controlled all that with your mouth, and with your hand in the bell, which I think a lot of people don't know that the hand that goes inside the instrument actually has quite a bit of control over the notes that are produced as well. Yeah, to add to that. So if you were... I don't know, somewhere in like 1660, showing up for your first opera gig, uh, being a horn player, you'd show up with a piece of plumbing and some more plumbing. Like we would show up with a bunch of different crooks to change the key we're in. And you would have maybe 20 bars or so to put that other piece in to make the horn either longer or shorter, depending on what the key of the piece is. And then being that, that you're in the key of that piece, let's say you have the C crook in, you're going to get about 16 notes possible on that crook. And so what the horn is, every fingering combination, we have seven fingering combinations, and then we have our um, trigger valve, which we have four total valves. The trigger valve gets us into another set of keys. So we got about 14 key centers and 16 partials on each of those. And as a horn player, you're kind of figuring out the tuning because you have tendencies on all partials. So you're finding out which partial tunes the best, which hand position you're gonna do. So for every note we play, there are a lot of these little things that are going on. I wish it were easier <laughs> at times. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you, you try to just play right in the center of the pitch and really trust your ear and constantly adjusting as a horn player. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you certainly make it easy. Uh, you make it sound easy when you play, Albert. Now, you joined the Kansas City Symphony in 2006, uh, and you, like Stephanie said, you hold the uh, Landon and Sarah Rowland principal horn chair. But before, long before you were here in Kansas City, uh, you were born in Spain, correct? And yes. 
grew up in Florida. Just talk to us a little bit about your musical upbringing, why you chose the horn, and how you got to where you are today as a, a fantastic professional horn player. Well, it, those are really funny stories. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> it, it is it is all very funny to me. Um, I would never have expected to be where I'm at in a lot of ways. My parents left Cuba when I was not even born. Um, they left uh, in 70, well, I'm going to really say my age, I guess. Um, they left in 72, and I was born in 73 in La Palma, Gran Canaria, which is a little island off of Africa that is property of Spain. And that's where my grandparents were from. And at some point, my parents decided to move to the States, and I was six months old, and we came over. Grew up in, in Miami, and... You know, I really loved music. I had no reason to play music when I was uh, figuring out what I was going to play. Um, I went to middle school. Back then, it was junior high school. Hmm. And I got to choose between the French horn and the trombone. And my brother played the trombone, and I didn't want to be like my brother. So I played the <laughs> French horn. And that's how I started. I really fell in love with the horn sound. And I was the only horn player in my, in my junior high school. When I got to high school, there was a performing arts high school that had just been put together, New World School of the Arts. John Delancey of Philly Orchestra was the dean. And um, I got into that program and really loved the horn. The first orchestra piece I, orchestral piece I ever heard was Mahler's Second Symphony. It was a recording that my physics teacher gave me to listen to. And I just spent back when Compact Six discs woo, discs <laughs> were a thing um um i was able to just borrow that disc and listen to it it was just strange nowadays everyone just you know thinks of something and it happens but you know you had to really search for things back then Mahler too would definitely be a an inspirational piece especially to want to play the horn i would think and mm -hmm. shortly thereafter, you, uh, speaking of Miami, you spent time with the New World Symphony, which is one of the fantastic pre-professional orchestras in the country. Um, as a matter of fact, if I'm not mistaken, you and Mike Gordon spent time there together. Is that correct? We did. We spent, uh, was it one or two years, Mike? I can't remember now. I think it, I think <laughs> it was a couple years. Well, let's see. Yeah. You came here in 2006. 2006. So yeah, it would have been a couple years. Yeah, I think Mike, the first time we met, we were uh, touring to Rome. That's right. We were performing Mahler 5 in Rome, and you were coming, you came in to play as an extra on the tour. As a sub. Yep. Yeah, that was really cool. Um, the greatest subbing gig ever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I got to spend two weeks in Miami and a week in Rome, and I got out of three weeks of uh, my senior year of college. Yeah, we didn't tour very much, but that was a good one. That was a <laughs> that was a winner. I think we had two concerts over like seven days. It was really phenomenal, um, as far as touring goes. That's a little different than your symphony schedule here when we're in in full full yeah. performance mode. Yeah, it was it was also interesting because that year the Queen Mary two cruise ship was released, and we played on that somehow. I don't know. Strange things we always play. Yeah, speaking of strange things you've played, so when I first moved here to Kansas City, you and your lovely wife, Meredith, were super nice, and uh, you and my husband, Dave, knew each other, and you let us stay in your house 
while we looked for a place to live, which was especially gracious of you because we had like a four month old at the time. Oh. <laughs> um, so that was lovely. But I feel like it was at that time that I learned that you had kind of a standing touring gig with Boys to Men. Is that right? Yeah. So in the summers, I'd go to Japan and tour around with Boys to Men, which was、nice. really, they had like a mini chamber orchestra and we would tour with them. And they were、That's、really、so、great.、Awesome. It was、uh, some of the best fun stuff we ever did. So, when we had them here in Kansas City just a couple years ago, did you play that concert then? I did. I wanted to play that and I got to talk to the guys and they remembered the times that when we were, when we were touring. It was really special.、Oh, nice. It was funny in Japan,、um, every concert they played was sold out. And we're not talking about 20,000 seats, we're talking these amphitheater things, 60,000 seat places. And they were always so kind to the audience. They always had time afterwards giving roses to everyone. Really sweet people. So, you've talked、um, a, a bit about your, where you've been, but I know that you're a huge advocate for、um, diversity in the orchestra world.、Um, can you talk a little bit about your involvement with? I know you're involved with Sphinx, and I, I feel like you've, you've just recently launched some projects too. Yeah. So,、um, What I've been part of is the National Alliance for Audition Support, and it's looking to improve diversity in orchestras. And there are a number of initiatives that are happening because of it. The, the biggest issue is that our orchestras, though everywhere, every workplace has evolved in the last 30 years, orchestras' percentages of people of color hasn't really evolved.、Uh, we try, we have、um, screens that auditioned, we have We try to create、um, the correct, as orchestras go, we try to create better and fair environments. Not all orchestras participate in a fair environment for hiring. We are promoting the use of screens for auditions and improved tenure process so that everyone does get a fair chance in receiving tenure. And then, as far as showing up to the audition, we provide financial support. For people taking auditions and prepare for an audition, master classes, mock auditions, stuff like that. And I'm, I'm involved in intensives that promote that. So I work with people that are pretty much one step away from winning a job. And we've had a lot of success. And you can find any of this stuff on the Sphinx website. There's a lot of information about that. Yeah. And、uh, Albert, I think that, that it starts with early education of kids. What are, I'm sure you've thought about that quite a bit too. What are some things you think we can do in the orchestral world to get out to communities more and, and make orchestral music accessible to everyone at a very early age so that kids, you know, regardless of what color they are or what、uh, background they are, no matter what it is, are finding that orchestral music is, is such a wonderful thing and, and can be involved in it themselves and start to learn how to play an instrument. You know, I just, the only thing I recall is my upbringing. And I know that when I was younger, there were a lot of people playing orchestra stuff. There were a lot of, you know, youth orchestras, all that stuff. And at some point in the process, they either lose interest or they're discouraged. And I hope that it's them losing interest rather than being discouraged. I think there are a lot of people of all sorts of colors. That want to be in orchestras. But at some point, they're having some misguided information from some mentor. And so 
I just encourage people to be optimistic and know that this field is for them. And there are going to be bumps and it's not easy. But I mean, we've all taken, Mike will tell you, we've taken plenty of auditions and we're not always going to win every one. And we just have to try harder and figure out how we work and get better at all those things. So just always promoting people to be themselves is the important thing. And everyone has a different way they conclude their path, way they create their path. And so don't give up hope. It's all there. So one of the things that I think is really, really awesome that I believe you've been a part of, you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, but in particular, the work with the Sphinx organization, I know you and I think our personnel manager, Justin, as well, have been uh, to Detroit, right? And and actually identified some really um, wonderful musicians uh, whom we've had here to sub and uh, hopefully uh, facilitated them coming for auditions as well. Talk, talk a little bit about that experience of of going to the convention or whatever it is there, and and really you know working hands on to to support these people because I think it's I think it's fantastic, and I think um, I think what you're saying is exactly right because it's it's easy to say, oh well, you know the orchestra world looks like it does because uh, because you know those are the people who who tend uh, to start in music in the first place as young people, their families tend to push it more. Uh, but I don't know that that's entirely true. And it's interesting what you say that, you know, somewhere in the chain, there's a, a barrier or a discouragement or, you know, extra friction that we can look to remove uh, in some way. So talk, talk a little bit about that, because I think that's amazing work and it's something we've experienced here in Kansas City. Yeah, so the thing that Justin and I have participated in is uh, the Sphinx Orchestral Partners Auditions. And what it is, is a place where people that are ready to sub with orchestras come and play for a panel of representatives from orchestras, their partner orchestras. And out of that, they can be added to sub pools. They can be given one-year contracts. They can be all sorts of things can happen from it. And a lot of people have done stuff through that. How we've used it so far is increasing our sub pool. And maybe if there's an audition that's coming up, we may encourage that person to come and audition for us. Um, and Sphinx, the Sphinx organization is kind of the umbrella group for all the stuff. But as far as NAS goes, um, the National Alliance, Sphinx is one part of that. And so what NAS is, it's a collaboration between Sphinx, the New World Symphony, and the League of American Orchestras. And I'm on the artist council of that. So I'm a musician representative from an orchestra. And there are a few of us, and we are always in contact with all three organizations to try to figure out different ways of promoting mentorship, audition preparation, and financial support for people interested in having careers in music. I think that's really, really a cool thing. And a lot of, there aren't many students who come out of music school and walk out and take an audition and win, win their very first audition. There are some, and I feel like somebody who came here and auditioned for the Kansas City Symphony actually this past season actually did that. Um, but I think that's rare. So, you know, providing an opportunity um, pr providing opportunities for somebody to come in and and learn and you know give them an in with an orchestra just to be able to sit and play as a substitute with um, professional musicians is already a huge advantage for them that you know 
may not be afforded to them otherwise without this program. But speaking of auditions, can you talk a little bit about your journey um, from, you know, school and New World and how like how you got from there to where you are? Absolutely. You know, I will just add one thing about um, the audition. I think that there are plenty of great musicians of all sorts of colors. And I think I do think over the years there has been discrimination apparent in our industry. And we're trying to address it by encouraging organizations to have training to be able to want to share a stage with someone that doesn't look like them, to encourage that kind of diversity. But but it is it is out there and it has happened and we're hopefully um, looking at better ways of advancing our field to accept everyone and what they can add for our orchestra. You sure. know, their diversity is a great thing in all workplaces, but especially on stage, if you have an audience that looks like people on stage, they're probably going to think they can do that too. You want to mm-hmm. encourage all of that. Um, we don't want to discriminate in any way. And so we, we want the best player, but we want also during the tenure process to realize that we're not adding people to our exclusive group. We're accepting them for who they are rather than the other way around. So my journey itself, I took plenty of auditions and boy, I took some silly ones <laughs> because I think that you end up being good at certain things. And for me, a high horn player, I was taking low horn auditions, which was a total waste of time because I don't sound good down there at all. <laughs> I work on it a lot and I just don't resonate in that range. So with with horn different than I think with flute or with most, when when you have a horn audition, there's there are distinctly high horn and low horn auditions. There are distinctly first horn, second horn, third horn, fourth horn. They're very distinct and people will resonate with certain ones and not with others. So for me, I probably took like, I don't know, like maybe like 40 or so auditions. <laughs> probably 35 of those were probably the wrong audition for me. Um, yeah, I took a low horn audition one time and I showed up and like everyone sounded good and I was bad. <laughs> and I didn't, like, I just don't play low horn. But then I started to take principal horn auditions and I started doing really well and advancing and getting to play section rounds and stuff like that. So that's kind of how I knew that that was the right direction for me. Mm -hmm. Um, Cool. Yeah. And this audition here, I was lucky enough in the audition process to be the only one in finals, I guess, at some point. And I just played everything that they wanted and was given the job. So um, auditions are hard. You know, they really, they really wear on you a bit as a person preparing for auditions and you just have to continue to keep the spirit of what's important and make sure that you can leave the room being happy with what you did rather than waiting for someone to tell you that you want a job or not. It's Hmm. all about your success. Yeah. That's well said. Um, You mentioned the different uh, horn parts, first, second, third, fourth, and the differences in the types of parts they usually have to play and therefore the difference in the auditions. People that are big orchestra fans will know that most of the time when you look up on stage, even though there's only four individual parts, there's five people sitting there. You, uh, as a horn section, are a unique section in the sense that oftentimes you have an assistant to the first player. So as principal, many times you have someone sitting uh, to your left that acts as an assistant player. And this is pretty unique. There's really no other section that has this on a regular basis an assistant principal of a se- another section or an assistant concertmaster plays all the time. 
Um, and sometimes they'll step up into that principal role when that person's gone. But you're there and you have an assistant. Tell us about the what what an assistant horn player's role is, other than bringing you coffee or you know, <laughs> yeah, I'd like watching that. your babysitting your kids or whatever else. When you're on stage, what is the assistant's no. role? <laughs> if only I had an assistant in that way. Now, um, <laughs> now the assistant horn is is unique, and it's pretty unique to American orchestras. Um, we we know that the first horn part is demanding a lot of times, and th- when there are things that are very important solos, like for instance, if we were doing the Tchaikovsky Five, the end of the first movement of the first movement of that symphony, I might not play for a little while to get my face in a right place to be able to play a lyrical solo like that. And there are also times in which we want to beef up the lower register when we have octaves, and we may have the assistant play doubling the second or fourth horn to make that more resonant and more projecting that quality of sound. Um, the assistant horn is really unique to the American orchestra system. I think the horn parts that composers wrote, especially in the romantic period, are really demanding for the first horn. And there has to be a way and it's to like make it through an Alpine symphony or a Mahler 8. And so the use of the assistant made it possible to have great success in these pieces. Otherwise, I would imagine the horn players were really pooped out by the end of that piece and probably couldn't play three concerts of the same thing in a weekend. So I think of a lot about that. I try to be cognizant of the rest of, uh, of my assistant horn, which is also associated in our orchestra, and that they don't work too much as well. I don't want to tire them out on the other stuff they have to do, but I want... I need to be able to play my best, so I have to give them stuff to do sometimes. But I usually leave that to the more romantic period pieces, and Tchaikovsky is one of those that he just continued to be abusive to the horns, I think, at times. Um, Mm -hmm. A good example is in the Nutcracker, we play this horn F sharp in like, I'm probably like 500 times in that piece. And it's just an arrangement that is very tiring, but we're just always there playing the same note over and over again. Um, so anyway, that being said, I think that it's based upon the repertoire of the romantic period forward that horn players at some point said, hey, we need help. You know, And back when orchestras were first a big thing in the 20s and 30s, BSO and stuff like that, they used to actually employ two full horn sections. So. Wow. It was just a different time. Now we've reduced it a bit. But the assistant horn continues to be a role that's quite important in the horn section. All right, Albert. So if you've been paying attention to our podcast uh, at all over the last several weeks, you know that we don't let anybody get out of here without answering two very important questions. And so the first one of these very important questions is, what is your favorite drink? All right, this is an easy one for me. (laughs) Somewhat. But I'll try to be brief. So double IPAs are kind of my thing. I really love double IPAs. I don't know if it's as I got older, my taste buds have died, but I really like the double IPA. But I was just introduced to a triple IPA out of Vermont, and it's called Lawson's Finest Liquids, and it's in Vermont. And I have the person who makes my horn lives in Vermont, and occasionally I get a little package of the triple Sunshine IPA. 
pretty awesome. Well, Sounds that must good. be why it must be why you and my husband get along so well because he's an IPA guy. Also, you'll have to tell him about the triple IPA because it might blow his mind. Yeah, well, I mean, as you know, David and I were roommates at the <laughs> Brit Festival, and we drank a many IPA there. <laughs> I do know. <laughs> He's continued the tradition even without you, I have to say. I have as well. Awesome. Well, and the uh, second question we have to ask you, of course, is if you were having a single, a double, a triple, a quadruple, a quintuple IPA with Beethoven, what would you ask him? This is a good one. Now, as a horn player, we get a lot of great music for Beethoven in the first horn part. And sometimes in the second horn part. But Beethoven saved his longest horn solo for the fourth horn part in the Ninth Symphony. Who did he write this for and why? Why would you give the solo to the fourth horn? I have to tell you, I've I've wondered that as well. That's a great question. I want to be around when you figure that out. You sound a little jealous, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just thirsty. Nice. All right. Well, this has been a lot of fun talking with you, Albert, and getting to know more about you and about the horn. But um, we are both big sports fans, you and me. uh, And I know from having talked to you several times that one of your favorite shows and one of my favorite shows on ESPN is Around the Horn. And since uh, we are talking all things horn today, I thought it'd be kind of fun to play our own version, our Kansas City Symphony version of the popular ESPN show Around the Horn today. So because I'm the conductor guy and I'm used to being in charge and because I'm the best looking of the four of us, I think I will be Tony Reale, the host. (laughs) And uh, you guys are going to be the panel of experts, so to say here about everything on the, uh, the the horn. So I'm going to ask a series of questions. And if I like your response to the question, you're going to hear a ding, a bell. <phone rings> Sounds like that. And if I don't like what you're saying at any point, you're going to hear, I think this is appropriate for the week, a horn, a ship horn. Okay, so as we're going through with your answers, you're going to hear those sounds. Just keep going. As on the show, the points really don't mean that much. But at the end, we'll let whoever wins the show uh, our recording engineer, Tim, Tim is going to keep track of the points here and whoever wins the show is going to be able to tell what their recommended listening is for the week. Okay. Hold on. I have a question. So you're saying that Mike Gordon, who's principal flute, Stephanie, who is a former clarinet player and Albert Suarez, who is principal horn in the Kansas city symphony are going to compete on horn knowledge. That's correct. You'll be fine. Trust me. These are opinion. These are opinion-based questions, so you can't go wrong. All right, I, th- I think we're ready to dive in here. Um, the first question I have for our illustrious panel is this: What is the best solo written for horn in the entire orchestral repertoire? We're going to start with the horn expert himself, Mr. Albert. I'm going to give you about thirty seconds, Albert. What's the best horn solo in the entire orchestral repertoire? Go ahead. I would have to say it is from. Mahler's Ninth Symphony, there's a first movement solo. And why that solo? Because it's awesome and written for the horn. It has a trill <laughs> and it's the coolest thing ever. All right. Uh, I'm not sure if that was a good explanation, but I do like that solo. So we, <laughs> we did give you some points. All right, let's go to Stephanie. What do you think is the best piece written for the, or the best solo, I should say, for the horn in the entire orchestral repertoire? Stephanie. All right, so 
Um, when my husband was playing horn all the time, I heard a lot of horn playing coming from the basement. So my vote is for Shostakovich's uh, Fifth Symphony, the flute duet, Mike, <laughs> the flute duet. Um, it's horn and flute. And I picked that because it was one of the few excerpts that wouldn't wake up my sleeping infant when he was practicing. That's a pretty good reason. I'm going to give you several points for that one. That was good. Okay. Now, Mike, what do you think? What's the best uh, solo written for horn? Well, hang on here, because I was going to say Mahler 9 as well. And unless Albert and I are talking about different solos, there is a wee little flute player playing along with the horn at the end of that first movement. That he it feels uh, apparently like it's forgot just about. Di- yeah, it feels like there's not. <laughs> it feels like it's just too far in the distance to know what it is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> As usual, the horn, like I said at the top of the show, is playing too loudly to even know that there's a flute playing. But, but that is but one of my crass. favorite solos. But less well, crass. I think. Less crass, that's true. At that that is one of my favorite solos as well, and it's got a wonderful flute part to go along with it, and uh, one day someone will hear it. Wow. I think that was negative five or six there. I'm not sure, but you have a lot of work to do, Mike, to catch up. All right. Question number two, besides Albert, of course, who is your horn hero? Do you have a particular player, either an orchestral horn player or a solo horn player that is your horn hero? We're going to start this one with Stephanie. Go ahead, Stephanie. Oh, with me? This is so easy. I'm so in love with my horn hero husband, David Brimhall will be married oh, wow. for 16 years in just a couple weeks. How nice. could I say anyone else? That's a good answer. That's a, that's hard to beat. He must be lurking in the background. How about uh, Mike? Who's your horn hero, Mike? Oh, wow. Well, I don't have the benefit of being married to a horn player, but uh, mine would have to be the legendary Dale Clevenger, longtime principal horn of the Chicago Symphony. That's a very good answer. A very good horn player one that many horn players have strived to emulate over the years, that's for sure. And last but not least, Albert, who is your horn hero? Well, I think this is this is a great question. And Clevenger has been a horn hero of mine for many years. Um, in the orchestra, I also would like to add Radovan Vlatkovic, which is a fantastic horn soloist and played in the Berlin Phil. Um, beautiful chamber musician, uh, you can find a lot of his stuff out there, but his recording of the Strauss Second Horn Concerto is the best one ever. Nice. Okay. Next question. If playing the horn was a sport, what sport would it be? Mike, we're going to start with you with this one. If playing the horn was a sport, what sport would it be? Oh, my goodness. Uh, playing the horn would be like, it's, it's kind of like basketball, actually. In a way. Okay, how so? Because, you know, it's a small, you got a team of five guys out there. It's, you know, a horn section. It can be more, it can be less, but it's about that size. And, you know, you you often have in basketball, like, the one superstar that really lifts the team. But then you need the four or five other guys uh, to fill it out. You've got specialists on the team who, are, you know, might be good at three-point shots, but can't hit a free throw to save their life or vice versa. So it's a little like that, I think. <laughs> That's a really good analogy, I have to say. Lots we, of points there for Mike. Were you good. dissing Albert's three-point shooting right there? Uh, yes. <laughs> no, I've never <laughs> seen Albert try to shoot a three-pointer, actually. 
But I know you do play basketball. Nice. All right, Albert, what sport? Do you, do you like Mike's analogy to basketball, or what sport would you compare horn playing to? You know, it is interesting because it is very much a team effort most of the time. And I do think that there are some people that are specialized in certain parts, low range, high range, you know, loud, articulated, all these things come into play. But for me, it's kind of more like a sharpshooter. They have to be precise and confident at all times. You want someone to hit the target from any length, and you want to feel comfortable that you're going to start when they're supposed to. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) And last but not least, Stephanie, what sport would playing the horn be in your opinion? Okay, so I'm taking um, in mind like like the equipment that you need, okay? Okay. So like I'm thinking like mountaineering. So like... Like, you got to have the right setup, right? You got to trust your equipment and be really familiar with your equipment. Because, look, we've been, through, we've been through a lot of horns in this house and a lot of mouthpieces and a lot of mutes and all, all sorts. Of, Albert's laughing at the mouthpiece because he knows, he knows about <laughs> the hunt for the mouthpiece. But uh, so you have to have, like, the right equipment, but then you also have to, like, know where you're going and really understand the path and the journey so you don't, Whoa. like, fall down and just bite it, because that can happen, too. <laughs> okay, you were doing so well, and then you tried to get way too deep. So I'm taking off a couple points there at the end. Okay, last but not least, this is probably the most important question of the day. The Kansas City Symphony has a fantasy football league that both Albert and I play in. Um, We've both done quite well, I feel like, in this league. Um, But the question is, who is going to have a better record this year in the 2020 Kansas City Symphony Fantasy Football League season? Myself or Albert? Albert, we're going to start with you with that question. I urge you to proceed with caution. Well, it's me, of course. I mean, as I have drafted Mahomes the past two years, and I actually won the league two years ago. So, me. All that is true. Now, if you remember, I tried to trade for Patrick Mahomes in like week two, not this past season, but the season before, which was his first full season playing. And I wanted him because I had a bad quarterback situation and you had him and Russell Wilson. And unfortunately, you gave me Russell Wilson instead of Patrick Mahomes. No offense to Russell Wilson. He's a great player, too. But if I would have had Mahomes, I would have won the league that year. So anyway, uh, Stephanie, who is going to win more games this year in the Kansas City Symphony's Fantasy Football League, me or Albert? Okay, I have a very scientific explanation for this. Oh, boy. So right now, Albert is wearing his Super Bowl champion Kansas City Chiefs shirt. And so that, that, that certainly gives me an idea of the type of player that he is looking to draft on his team. And then I know that you are a Browns fan, which gives me the uh, expectation of the type of player you are looking for on your team. So I give the advantage to Albert. I will add that in those in the first draft that Jason participated in, there seemed to be a lot of Browns players taken. Mm. Mm-hmm. There were, but they, there were such high hopes for all of them. And so much so that he wanted to trade for someone in the second week. That's true. That's true. <laughs> actually, last year when the Browns were actually supposed to be good for the first time in forever, I 
took uh, Baker Mayfield and I don't remember who else. There was I had two Browns players, and uh, that turned out to be a little bit of a mistake. But anyway, moving on, Mike, who is going? And this let's remember this is not about past performance. This is this year. Who's going to have a better fantasy football league record, me or Albert? Mike, this is your chance to really redeem yourself. Wow. Um, there's a lot <laughs> riding on this uh, and not a lot of pressure. And uh, yeah, so I, I do have an answer, though. So okay. I, I think that, uh, you know, given everything that's happening in the world right now, it's uncertain, you know, when we'll be able to get back to sports, how we'll be able to get back to sports. And and combine that with Jason's, you know, natural leadership skills. He's shown a history of of adversity and, uh, you know, overcoming it as a Browns fan. And, you know, he's used to sticking with a team and seeing through a plan. And I just, I feel that this is the right environment for Jason to shine in fantasy football. So I'm going with Jason. Yes, 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 yes. Can we, can we, can we just uh, let this keep going for about one more minute of dings, please? Let's just catch up here. I, yeah, I need to uh, add just a few more. Yeah, Jason, don't, don't kill your batteries there, friend. Okay. All right, yeah. there we go. The, uh, I think we have finished the game. We're going to see who has the most points. Tim, our wonderful recording engineer and audio engineer, has been keeping tally. Tim, can you let us know, perhaps, who won the game? Let's see. He's putting it up. The final score here in third place with three points is our guest today, Albert. Albert. Albert, Albert. In second place with seven points, Stephanie. And in first place with nine points, Mr. Mike Gordon. Wow. What? Wow. So, Mike, you get today's final word. You get to tell us what you recommend for listening for this week for <laughs> all of our uh, wonderful podcast listeners. That's a sleeper win right there. Nobody was <laughs> betting on that. I didn't bet on that. <laughs> nice. You get the final word, Mike. Wow. What would you like all to right. recommend? Well, for our recommended listening this week, uh, since Stephanie did mention the Shostakovich 5, and I love that uh, solo as well, I'm recommending a wonderful recording of uh, Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony with the Berlin Philharmonic, Gustavo Dudamel conducting. And of course, one of my heroes who I've mentioned before on this podcast, Emmanuel Pahoud, is playing flute and Stefan Dorr uh, playing horn. That's definitely a good recommendation, Mike. Now, you did win the show today, but I feel like Albert's been such an amazing guest. We should let him also recommend some listening for this week. Albert, what do you recommend? Well, there are two great recordings, both by the Chicago Symphony with the Bado conducting. There's a Tchaikovsky Five, which features Dale Clevenger on that great solo that would have been this week. And then there's a great Mahler Seven recording, both by Clevenger and Abado again. Nice. Well, if I can give a quick recommendation myself, since we've been talking all things horn this week, Mahler Five is one of my all-time favorite pieces, and of course, it has one of the great, great horn solos in the third movement. So I'm going to recommend the Vienna Philharmonic with Leonard Bernstein conducting, uh, Mahler Symphony Number no. 5, and Friedrich Pfeiffer is the horn player on that magnificent recording. So I actually went to my husband for this recommendation because I wanted to give you guys something that was very, very cool to listen to. And he also agrees that Radovan Vlakovich is one of his horn heroes. And there's a recording of him uh, performing the Schumann Concert, Concertstück 
um, which I know that you guys did the section here in Kansas City did as well. It's a concerto for four horns. And we'll put the link um, uh, to that recording as well, because it's it's just a really great listen and an awesome piece. So do you have a question for us? Is there something that you've just really wanted to know or a topic that you've wanted us to discuss here on our podcast? Well, now's your chance. We are soliciting questions from all of you to air on a future episode of Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. You can send us those questions through our website at kcsymphony.org, or I'll post a link in the section below that you'll be able to click on that and send us your questions. We'd love to hear from you and would love to have your questions featured on an upcoming episode coming soon to Beethoven Walks Into a Bar.